0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Research Radio, a podcast of the Economic and Political Weekly. I am Johan and today we have with us Professor Tathagatan Ravindran, an anthropologist with the Departamento de Estudios Sociales at Universidad Isesi in Colombia. Professor Tathagatan Ravindran, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Uh, I have been writing for EPW for the past few years. I published my first commentary in EPW in 2008, and I published two others in 2020 and one more in this year. So it's my pleasure to be here to share my work with a wider audience and to, you know, um, and basically to share my work on Latin America. I'm a Latin Americanist, one of the few Indian Latin Americanists working in a Latin American university. So it's a pleasure for me to reach out to this special audience. And it's a very special audience because I know that TPW has a very special readership, which includes not just academics. EPW has a readership which includes most public intellectuals of India, journalists, social activists, and many of them are really curious about Latin America. So I would like to share some of my experiences of working and living and conducting research on Latin America.
0: It's our pleasure to have you here, sir. Let us begin by talking about the recent left victory in Colombia. Why is this particular victory so important amongst the resurgence of the left in Latin America?
1: Latin America has seen a resurgence of the left from the beginning of the 21st century. So there were a series of mobilizations, mobilizations led by diverse social sectors against neoliberal economic policies in different Latin American countries and left governments were formed in multiple countries towards the beginning of the in the first decade of the 21st century and there was a return to the right in some countries in the second decade of the 21st century but now we see a revival of the left once again so this phenomenon is referred to as the pink tide right which means it's a kind of center left you no know, um, current which is going on currently so it's called a pink tide and mm-hmm. the pink tide which began in the 21st century had some setbacks in the second half, in the second decade of the 21st century, and now it's returning with greater force. And the left victory in Colombia is particularly important because Colombia was one of the few countries in Latin America which never had a left government. And moreover, mm-hmm. Colombia is a space where the left has been stigmatized historically. There is a big stigma attached to the left because Colombia has the longest civil war in the continent between left guerrillas on the one hand and the state and paramilitary forces on the other. Mm -hmm. So though both sides are responsible for human rights violations, the media selectively focuses on human rights violations by the guerrillas exaggerating them, right? And so in the public Mm -hmm. opinion, the idea is that left uh, left is equivalent to no uh, to uh, to common criminal activity right because the media uh, I, I, I don't just mean the news media so if there are a lot of like no uh, television serials right some of them are available mm-hmm. on netflix if some of you are interested made in colombia mm-hmm. and all of them portray the left guerrillas as criminals criminals mm-hmm. and drug dealers right and so mm-hmm. the political mm-hmm. content of the civil war is entirely erased by the media, it's entirely erased in public opinion. So, a lot of Colombians came to believe that the left is equivalent to crime, the left is equivalent to narco-trafficking, and so on. So, in this context, a former guerrilla leader, right, from the left winning a presidential election is unprecedented, and it marks a major turning point in Colombian history, but also in Latin American history, because Colombia was the Most important ally of United States, right? And Mm -hmm. and the policies of United States of um, controlling the region, United States see Latin America as its backyard. So the ex-Secretary of State, John Curry, once made a public statement that Latin America is our backyard, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm Colombia is one of the major countries where the, the U.S. even utilizes Right, to implement its imperialist foreign policy designs in the region. So in that sense, the victory of the left in Colombia is a major achievement for Latin America as a whole, for the Latin American left as a whole.
0: I'm also curious to hear your own experiences of watching this unfold. I recall that in your paper you mentioned meeting uh, Vice President Marquez before she became the Vice President. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I, li- I live in the city of Cali. I teach at Universidad de Sesi, which is a private university in Cali. And Colombia uh, witnessed a series of mobilizations, political mobilizations against neoliberal economic policies in the previous years. So I arrived in Colombia in 2016. And in 2018, Ivan Duque gets elected as the president. And throughout his uh, government, there were protests. There were protests by university students for better public education right for free and um, uh, see for free public education and the better quality public education uh, there yeah. were movements of indigenous people afro-colombians right uh, peasant communities and so on for the defense of ancestral territories right against paramilitary forces which uh, expropriate their lands and send them off to the cities as refugees as undisplaced as you no know, um as displaced migrants, and so on. So I have been witnessing these mobilizations. Uh, I participated in some of them. My students were active in organizing many of these mobilizations. So I had a very direct connection with these mobilizations. And in 2021, there was a major mobilization in the city of Kali. The city of Kali became the epicenter of resistance against neoliberal policies of the Duke government. So, um, the city turned into a battlefield where you had like thousands marching on the streets and you had the armed forces indiscriminately firing on protesters. So, sometimes you had like uh, the police entering residential neighborhoods and indiscriminately firing on unarmed civilians, many of whom did not even participate in protests. The idea was to create a reign of terror so that people do not go out of their houses. People did not participate in demonstrations so that people did not occupy the streets. But it did not work. Because the brutality of the repressive measures just added fuel to fire. And you had more people on the streets every day. And the state began responding with greater repression. And I was part of it. So so I could see helicopters flying at a low altitude in my neighborhood. I had some of my students who were directly affected. So I had a student who was arrested who was tortured and forced to give false confessions that he was carrying explosives. Another student of mine was forced to go underground after receiving death threats. So I was part of the whole process. And in the whole of Latin America, in most of the countries, the left came to power riding on the wave of mobilizations against neoliberal economic policies. So you see a series of mobilizations and then you have left governments coming to power. So in Colombia too, the same thing happened. So I was personally no witnessing all these movements i offered support to some no uh, uh, to some people who are participating in mobilizations there was a group at the university which was basically uh, supplying food right and medicines to people at the main centers of blockade and so on i was personally involved no in many ways
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the vice president francia marquez is somebody who has been very active in colombian social movements so I met her just a few months after I arrived in Colombia in 2016. She used to visit the university very often to give talks. And um, I am closely associated with the Center for Diasporic Studies at my university. And she being a very prominent Afro-Colombian leader, she used to visit you know, the university and the center very often. Uh, we have also attended some you know, political meetings together. So Francia Marquez was very active in her rural community. She's somebody who comes from the grassroots, right? She represents Mm -hmm. the most impoverished and neglected sectors in Colombian society. So she -hmm. she grew up in a small Afro-Colombian rural community. Then she went to the city as as a teenager to work as a domestic servant in a house. And later she goes back to her rural community. And there she starts organizing people from her community against illegal mining.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So illegal mining is a big problem in Colombia. So you had like uh, paramilitary groups who were engaged in illegal mining in collusion mm-hmm. with the biggest transnational corporations of the world. right? So it was neoliberalism now in alliance with paramilitary criminalism. That was what was going on. And any attempts mm-hmm. to protest mm-hmm. was met with death threats. So Francia Marquez saw that her whole community Know, was under serious threat because the rivers were polluted, right? So they, had, you know, so it affected their access to drinking water. It affects affected their livestock, right? Um, mm-hmm. So the rivers were contaminated with mercury and cyanide. You no, know? so livestock, crops, the earth, everything was poisoned. So Francia Marquez decided to march to the capital city of Bogota. So she led a group of women. They marched to Bogota and they occupied the Ministry of Interior, right? Meaning like the like the Home Ministry in India. So they occupied the ministry overnight and they refused to leave until the government responds. So this focused international attention on the struggle of black women in Colombia and Francia Marquez wins the Goldman Prize, which is seen as the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for you know, environmental activism. But that also converted her into a priority target for paramilitary forces and her Dutch squads so in 2019 there was an assassination attempt against her so I visited her house after that incident and there was a friend of mine from a neighboring Latin American country who offered her asylum political asylum in his country and she told no Mm -hmm. I cannot leave my people behind to struggle on their own so um and so it was a really uh, difficult moment for us. You know? So as we got out of a house, my friend said, it looks like a chronicle of a death foretold. And three mm-hmm. years later, Francia Marquez, is you know, the vice president of Colombia, it was a decision she took last year when she, de- when she decided that, no, no, uh, we cannot continue like this before because social movements in Colombia were always averse to participation in electoral politics. So they, they felt that, okay, their role is to struggle in the streets, conduct demonstrations, mobilize against the government, and not participate in elections, which they saw as a, you no, know, as a corrupt field of politics. Mm-hmm. So, so when she announces this that she's going to contest elections, it was a surprise for many of us. So once again, we visited her. I was accompanied by some other academics and you no know, community leaders, social activists, and she told, "I'm tired of blocking highways." Right, over and over again, and the government continues with the same politics of death. Right, so then she gives a slogan from resistance to power, and she decides to participate in elections. She forms her own political organization, and um, yeah, and so we accompanied her no, in, in some phases of her campaign too.
0: Let us backtrack now, Professor Tathagatan, to another left victory, which I think was the watershed in the history of the left in South America. Could you tell us a bit more about the rise of Bolivia's first-ever indigenous president, Ebo Morales, and what were some of the important changes that they were trying to implement?
1: Yeah, thank you for this question, because um, I did my doctoral research in Bolivia, on Bolivian social movements and so now I'll be really glad to share my experiences. So Bolivia was one of the countries which saw the strongest mobilizations against neoliberalism. So historians Sinclair Thompson and Forrest Hilton Argue that if Latin America was at the forefront of resistance to neoliberalism, Bolivia was its insurrectionary front line, not to borrow their words. So it, it all began in 2000, when in the city of Cochabamba, mm-hmm. the government decided to privatize water. Right? So there was a multinational corporation, which was invited to take over the distribution of water. And what happens is that the water fares increase by about three hundred to four hundred percent, and the company also prohibits, you know, private collection of water. Right? For example, like there's a there's a major movie made on it called Even the Rain. También la lluvia. So people were prohibited from collecting rainwater in their buckets,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Because the water in you no know, in the whole um, city belonged now to the transnational corporation. They were the only ones who were authorized to collect and distribute water. Mm-hmm. So the whole city erupts in rebellion. And, and finally, they force the multinational corporation to leave Bolivia. And the government is forced to uh, backtrack on its policy of you know, privatizing water. And this was a watershed moment. It's just a turning point. And I personally got interested in Latin America because of this, because the leader of the movement, Oscar Oliveira, visited the Asian Social Forum in Hyderabad in 2000. And that's how I came to know of Cochabamba. And that's how I got interested in Bolivia uh, and Latin America in general. So, and after that, there were a series of mobilizations. In 2003, in the city of El Alto, there was a mobilization demanding the nationalization of gas.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was a spectacular mobilization because the whole city, you know, the, an entire city, of almost one million people rose in rebellion, right? So there were mar- like so there were demonstrations of you know about uh, three lakh people who marched from El Alto. El Alto is just was began as a satellite city of the administrative capital La Paz. So they mm-hmm. marched from yeah. El Alto to La Paz, right? Some three lakh people, and they forced the government to flee. They fo- sorry, they forced the president to flee. The president mm-hmm. had to flee in a helicopter. Right? And in 2005, they forced another president to resign because the president did not accept to the, to the demand of the nationalization of gas. The, so the then President Carlos Mesa, he declared that, yeah, it's not easy. Right? He said it's very easy to blockade the streets. So he was referring to Evo Morales, who was the opposition leader at that point of time, the indigenous opposition leader who was organizing blockades and mobilizations. And so Carlos Mesa, Mesa resigns, making a public statement that Evo Morales does not know ha, what what it means, what it entails to rule a country. It's very easy to talk about national sovereignty, right? When you are on the other side of the desk, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I invite him to come forward to rule the country, and then you will learn what it means to rule the country. So what Carlos Mesa also mentioned was that uh, that he you know that the united states has said no to nationalization spain has said no the european union has said no so i cannot go ahead with it mm-hmm. right so he told uh, people who are demonstrating on the streets do not know that i pay their salaries from what i receive from those countries i use a begging bowl and they give me right and they give me something right and with that i pay your salaries right so i cannot go against the interests of the United States or, uh, or European Union. Mm-hmm. So that was a public statement he made. And he also added that Bolivia is ungovernable because of the protests. It told Bolivia mm-hmm. is an ungovernable country, so I resigned. And then Evo Morales wins the elections and he nationalizes gas. But it was a kind of partial nationalization because it entailed an increase in the royalties and taxes the transnational corporations involved in Gas extraction pay the government. So earlier they used to pay eighteen percent. So eighteen percent of you know, the profits were uh, were uh, royalties and taxes to the government, and eighty two percent remained in in their hands. You know, so that, so the Bolivian public saw that eighty two percent of the wealth of the revenue generated from hydrocarbon extraction used to go out of the country, and only eighteen percent remained within the country in the form of taxes and royalties so evo morales inverts the whole scheme and he says no so 82% would be would be equivalent to the royalties and taxes the companies would pay the state
2: mm-hmm.
1: right so they can they can remain with 18% and 82 would now belong to the bolivian state and so mm-hmm. this increased government revenue to a big extent and the government used It to increase public expenditure, uh, start direct cash transfers to the elderly, right, who did not have any pensions. He also created direct cash transfers to pregnant mothers, to public school students. And a lot of investment was made in rural development. So before Evo Morales, the countryside was almost forgotten. There there was almost no public investment in the countryside. So after Mm -hmm. Evo Morales became president... Public investment in the countryside, in the rural sector, in favor of the small small peasantry, increased exponentially. So public expenditure increases exponentially. Poverty, extreme poverty, and inequality also reduces significantly. Right, and the government also began the industrialization of earlier. Bolivia just used to export raw materials without any added value. So what happens after the Morales government is that the government slowly begins a process of industrializing natural resources like gas, iron ore and lithium. And the government also um, convenes a new constituent assembly, which was another major demand of those who are protesting on the streets. So a new constituent assembly, which declares Bolivia to be a plurinational state, recognizes indigenous groups as separate nations, right? recognizes um, indigenous languages as official languages, and, also, and the government also passes a law against racism and discrimination. So all these policy measures and all these laws create dramatic transformations in the country.
0: So given these transformations, what impact did the rise of Morales in Bolivia have on other countries in South America and the rest of the world? Not only as an inspiration to the left, but also in terms of attempts to undermine left successes.
1: Yeah, the Bolivian experience was an inspiration for social movements in many, you know, parts of the region and also the world. I think, like many people in India, you know just heard of Bolivia because of Evo Morales, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, but it's very important to to know that um, if you look at the international press, right, you have a demonization of Evo Morales, right? So, especially if you look at the major corporate media around the world, right. Evo Morales mm-hmm. is presented you know, as a power-hungry dictator, right? Uh, mm-hmm. you know, who's involved in narco trafficking and so on. So you know, so the negative image propagated on Evo Morales is also uh, very prevalent throughout the region and the rest of the world. And in 2019, mm-hmm. a coup took place in Bolivia, right? So when Evo Morales wins the elections, the organization of American States dominated by the United States, comes up with an audit of the election results. And they say that there are irregularities and new elections need to be conducted. And Evo Morales accepts it. He says, "Okay, so let's have new elections. But then you have people mobilizing on the streets, mainly, the most conservative sectors of Bolivian society, right, Uh, start mobilizing against uh, President Morales. They demand his resignation. And the military also steps in. And the heads of the police forces and the military demand his resignation. So what happens is a military coup. So if the head of the armed forces asks the president to step down, it is a military coup. Mm -hmm. And, And after the military coup, there is an intense racist backlash. So indigenous people made a lot of gains during the presidency of Evo Morales. And what happens uh, during the year of the coup was an intense racist backlash where indigenous people are rounded up in the streets, beaten, and so on, right? So, So here you see how the success of Bolivia is undermined, right? A coup is conducted so that the experience of Bolivia does not turn into an inspiration or a model for the other countries to follow, So something which the United States has always tried to do in Latin America is to show that there is no alternative, right? There is no alternative Mm -hmm. to neoliberalism. So whenever there are alternative models or alternative experiments, alternative experiences, they try to undermine it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what they did in Venezuela through economic blockades and so on to show Latin America and the world, that no, there is no alternative to neoliberalism. If you try something different, you will end up like Venezuela, which is facing starvation, right? Mm -hmm. So Bolivia Mm -hmm. was another success story of the left in Latin America. Five years before the coup, uh, Bolivia had the highest rates of economic growth in the region, right? And had very, like, a, a dramatic reduction of poverty and inequality, right? So it was very important to Destroy the model, destroy the idea, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So that explains the coup. You were speaking about the racist backlash, right? And I was uh, reminded of in your article, you, you make this contrast between the women in the poliera skirts, right? On the one hand, and yeah. and on the other hand, the people you know who painted swastikas and you know who have this genealogy of uh, of Nazism. So, could you explore that a bit more? Because I think that is a very interesting uh, contrast.
1: Yes, it's an interesting contrast indeed. In Bolivia, indigenous women wear the poyera, which is a skirt, right? It's a very typical skirt used by indigenous women. And the poyera skirt came to represent indigeneity, right? So, it was the most visible symbol of indigenous origin. So... During the presidency of Evo Morales, women wearing the pollera were appointed right, as directors of institutions, as ministers, as ambassadors. right. And this mm-hmm. was a major scandal in Bolivian society because the Bolivian so- do- uh, dominant society in Bolivia saw women wearing the pollera as peasants or domestic servants. Not more than that. So the symbolic impact of appointing Women wearing the poyera as ministers, directors of major institutions, right, ambassadors had a major impact. It had a major impact on indigenous people because they could see that yeah, somebody like them are occupying high positions of power in the government, right? Mm-hmm. But for the traditional elites, it was a symbol of their pr- power and their privilege, of their inherited privilege being questioned. And challenged, right? So this is something which the traditional elites could not tolerate. So when I was doing my research in Bolivia, from traditional elites as well as the middle classes, the white mestizo middle classes, I could, I would constantly hear these kind of complaints: "Oof, the government is appointing no women wearing the Yara everywhere. They don't value professional professionals anymore, right?" So Mm -hmm. the idea was that professionals cannot get jobs. What matters is that you are indigenous and you wear the Poyera, right? And you're involved in left politics and you would be given a job, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of women wearing the Poyera acquired professional training, right? But the dominant racial common sense was that no, women of Poyera are basically ignorant. They do not have professional training, right? They are not educated and so on. So what happens is that During the coup, there is an intense racist backlash. You have paramilitary groups which were formed, some of them which existed before, but some new ones were also formed in the run-up to the coup, and they go around in the streets and whenever they see women wearing the poyera, they start hitting them, right? Or when women wearing the poyera enter public spaces, like the plazas, these groups go in and they ask them to leave the plaza, right? Mm -hmm. So this was something very common during the days of the coup and the days preceding it when the elites were mobilizing against Evo Morales. The law against racism, which Evo Morales passed, had a major impact because earlier restaurants in posh neighborhoods, right, or uh, or public spaces in, no, public spaces in elite neighborhoods were reserved for the white mestizos. Indigenous people were not allowed to enter, right, so... Restaurants had a you know, had a signboard which said right to entry reserved,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. So so, when indigenous women wearing the poyera tried to enter restaurants, they were not allowed to enter because the owner of the restaurant supposedly had the right to reserve entry. The idea was to make spaces racially exclusive, right? Mm-hmm. So they were not allowed to enter spaces like discotheques, right? Uh, uh, multiplexes, shopping malls, and so on. So what happens with the law against racism is that all establishments were forced to remove signboards which say right to entry reserved and place another signboard. It was made legally mandatory to place a signboard which said everyone is equal before the law. Right. Mm-hmm. So you had women wearing the poyera entering five-star restaurants, women wearing the poyera entering shopping malls in the most elite neighborhoods of the city, and there was a major racist backlash to it. So, you had like, you know, um, in the social networking sites, residents from elite neighborhoods expressed their horror at the sight of women wearing the poyera entering shopping malls in their neighborhoods and so on. Right. Mm-hmm. So, what happens during the coup? This intense racist backlash when you have paramilitary groups who go around physically attacking women wearing the poyera. And some of these paramilitary groups have a genealogy, have a political genealogy which links them to the Nazis. And Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about neo-Nazis. I'm talking of classical Nazis. So Mm -hmm. uh, after the Second World War, there were some Nazis, right? Some Nazis associated with the SS and so on, who migrated to Latin America after the Second World War. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So one of them was Klaus Barbie, who was a major general, right? In the Nazi armed forces. His name is Klaus Barbie. Anybody familiar with the Second World War would know who is Klaus Barbie. He was called the Butcher of Lyon, who is responsible for for the murder of thousands of um, French, uh, thousands of members of the French resistance during the Nazi occupation of France. So he's responsible for the deaths of uh, thousands of uh, French people, including children. So, So Klaus Barbie migrates to Bolivia under a different identity. And ironically, it's the CIA who hires him, right? So the United States defeats, they defeat the Nazis in Germany, but then they recruit some Nazis to work for the CIA to combat communism, right? During the Cold War. So Klaus Barbie goes to Bolivia under a different name. And there he links up with some conservative Bolivian politicians and activists, and they formed this organization called the Unidad Juvenil Crucenista, which is the paramilitary organization, mm-hmm. right, of the extreme right-wing forces in Bolivia. So the founder of the Unidad Juvenil Crucenista, Carlos Valverde, was closely associated with Klaus Barbie. So you have symbols of the swastika, you know, still used by members of the Unidad Juvenil Crucenista. So they go around the city in their vans, right, painted with the swastika and they enter indigenous neighborhoods right to physically attack indigenous people mm-hmm. right so, so this contrast between the poyera skirt and the swastika is something very striking and it sums up what is at stake in contemporary bolivia
2: mm-hmm.
0: another thing that i found very interesting was that you know when you you mentioned that initially in, in Bolivia, socialism was rejected as European, but later it appears that indigenous politics begins to embrace it, especially when you look at some of the provisions in the new constitution, or for example, the repeal of the decree which had declared the adoption of free market principles. What do you attribute the shift in focus from more indigenous identity politics, like in the case of the glorification of the indigenous past in the mestizaje ideal, to focusing on more, if I may call them that, material concerns. Because I think, you know, there is echoes of this in other parts of the world as well, where, where there seems to be a lot of focus on uh, in the identity politics. But what seems to be different in this case, or in the case of Bolivia, is that there is a very conscious effort to focus on the material the material concerns.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh... Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer because it's really complicated, right? So, but I would try to be brief and try to, um, yeah, try to summarize, No, you know. Um, in Bolivia and, and, and the whole of Latin America, there has been a fluidity of class and racial identity. So, racial categories are fluid and very often overlaps with class. So, historically, indigenous was associated with the peasant, right? So so due to this fluidity of categories, indigenous movements have always included material concerns, right, also in different degrees. So you have some tendencies within the indigenous movement which focus on questions of indigenous cosmovision, radical difference from Western civilization and so on. But there are other sectors within indigenous politics which focus on socioeconomic inequalities between indigenous people. Right and the rest of the population, which are white mestizos, so so that's why you see indigenous people have been at the forefront of resistance to neoliberal policies, because in Bolivia and the rest of Latin America generally, race races closely associated with class, and there is an overlap of categories, right? So that created multiple tendencies within the indigenous movement, and some of them closely identify. Addressing material issues, right? The issues like socioeconomic inequality, structural economic inequalities as their major concern, as a major concern of indigenous politics. So, there are some indigenous groups which focus on questions like, okay, radical difference from Western civilization. So, how indigenous people understand their relationship with nature, with mother nature, and so on, right? But there are other groups which focus on the questions of socioeconomic inequality. So for them the major expression of in you know, of uh, racial domination is socioeconomic inequality right so they say okay so we have been we have been oppressed for 500 years right 500 years of colonialism has made the white mestizos rich and us poor right so we are poor because you know, the white mestizos have taken exclusive benefit of natural resources. The whites have better houses and they live in better neighborhoods because they have oppressed us for 500 years. They have extracted all natural resources from our lands. right? So we had to die in the mines. We had to die right, working for them so that they get rich. Right? Mm-hmm. So the whole question of the domination of white mestizos over indigenous is read as economic domination. as It's read in terms of racial exploitation. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you have one of the earliest Indianist thinkers, Fausto Reinaga, who writes in the 60s. And if you read his works, it sounds like a kind of ethnic Marxism, right? Or a racially inflected labor theory of value when he argues that are, it's indigenous people are the ones who are working, right? In the countryside, indigenous people are the ones who are working in the mines, indigenous people are the ones who are constructing the big buildings, indigenous people are the ones who are. No, uh, working in the petroleum fields, but they are not. They, they never get the fruits of it.
0: You mentioned in the case of Bolivia how racism and fundamentalism have been used to further a neoliberal agenda. What about some of the other countries in Latin America? I know you mentioned Brazil and Chile in your, in your papers, but it would be interesting to hear how this plays out in other Latin American countries.
1: Yeah, Brazil is a good example because The extreme right wing president Bolsonaro during his election campaign used religion very explicitly. So, you have evangelical groups which basically come from the United States. So, Latin America historically has been Catholic, right? Catholic, Mm -hmm. it's a kind of syncretic Catholicism. So, you have Catholicism and you also have indigenous beliefs, right? So, you have people going to church, no, and the same day they would be practicing indigenous rituals, they would be making alcoholic libations, right, offering, you no, know, uh, making uh, offerings to their mountain gods and so on.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: what happens with evangelical sects is that evangelical sects see any kind of indigenous belief system as pagan, right? Mm-hmm. And so what evangelicals do is to actually purify Christianity from its... Syncretic elements from indigenous elements, and, there, and mm-hmm. in Afro-Colombian communities, you also have, you no, know, like uh, religious beliefs with African roots, right? It's a very interesting thing. So what happens is that you have evangelical groups spreading very fast throughout Latin America, and most of them come from the United States, right? So one thing they do is work against indigenous identity. So what the evangelical groups do is that. First, they encourage people to disidentify as indigenous. So your identity is not of being indigenous but of being you know, a child of God. Right? Mm-hmm. So first they encourage people to disidentify as indigenous, they prohibit indigenous rituals, indigenous belief systems, and so on, considering them as pagan, right? Something associated with the devil and so on. But more importantly, they organize politically. And they do political campaigns, even election campaigns for the extreme right, right? So in Brazil, evangelical groups conducted a very strong campaign against the left and in favor of the extreme right candidate, Bolsonaro. And you see that in Bolivia too, you had when the coup took place, the main organizer of the coup who has his roots in the Unidad in El crucenista the organization with the, with, you know, the uh, Nazi political roots, he enters a presidential palace. When Morales is forced to leave, he enters the palace with a Bible. And he's accompanied by a priest who declares the Bible has returned to the palace and Pachamama will never return. Pachamama is the indigenous mother goddess. Right? So you have religion playing a very active role in neoliberal restoration. So you see that in every country, in Colombia too, you had far-right evangelical groups who are campaigning against the left, saying that the left supports an anti-Christian agenda, which includes legalizing abortion, you no know, support to LGBTQ groups, and so on. So very often, one of the major uh, allies of neoliberalism, not just in Latin America, if you look at the history of neoliberal restoration in the United States or Britain, if you think of Reganism, Thatcherism, the religious right was a major ally. Right. So some of the major bedfellows have been the religious right. So it's, it's really ironic that the major ally of neoliberalism is the religious right. right? And extremely illiberal ideologies. Mm-hmm.
0: As is well known, and as you mentioned in your paper, there has been U.S. involvement in the politics of Latin America for decades. And they have on several occasions been successful in thwarting the left. What has been their response to this new resurgence of the left in Latin America? Yeah, the United States
1: has always seen Latin America as its backyard. So when the left emerges in Latin America, it became a major challenge for them. So in the early mm-hmm. 2000s, the United States had a plan of creating a free trade area of the Americas. So first began with the NAFTA, which includes you know, Mexico and Canada, And individual free trade agreements were signed with countries like Colombia. But the plan of the United States, mainly the Bush administration, was to convert the whole region into a free trade zone. And you had left presidents who oppose it. Mm -hmm. So you had an alliance between Hugo Chavez and Lula in Brazil. There were two left governments of very different orientation. So you associate Chavez with the... More contestatory radical left and Lula with the moderate left, but their alliance proved to be very crucial in thwarting US designs in the region. So, the creation of the free trade area of the Americas was a major US you know, uh, policy in the region. Mm-hmm. And what happens with the rise of the left is that the left leaders reject the proposal. Mm-hmm. And the left leaders also unite to create alternative forums. So the United States has the Organization of American States, which it dominates. They played a very major role against left governments. For example, the Bolivian coup began with the OAS representative declaring that there has been a fraud in the elections and so on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So alternative yeah. forums were created, like the ILba So, the the government of Venezuela played a major role in the creation of ALBA, which is called the Bolivarian Alternative for the Americas, Mm -hmm. a union of left governments in the region. There are also other groups like MERCOSUR, right? So, what happens is that the left leaders come together, they form alternative international organizations to counter US hegemony in the region. And that is something which really affects US imperialism and their designs. So the United States has actively colluded with the opposition in Latin America to overthrow left governments. So for example in Bolivia, after the election of Ivo Morales, the opposition, the right-wing opposition was actively assisted by the United States Embassy. So the ambassador was Regularly having meetings with opposition leaders to topple the government. There were some sectors in Bolivia which, you know, like there were separatists. So, in the eastern part of Bolivia, where the elites you know, are concentrated, mm-hmm. there were attempts to separate from Bolivia and create a separate nation state. And most of the natural resources, the hydrocarbons, are located in the eastern provinces. And the idea was to. Was uh, to create a separate nation state, and the United States appointed Philip Goldberg as the ambassador to Bolivia when this when these secessionist movements were taking place, and that's because Goldberg was the ambassador who oversaw the breakup of Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. So they appoint somebody with the experience of breaking up states, right, to actively help the separatist movement led by the. Extreme right-wing forces in eastern Bolivia,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Evo Morales expels him, right? Because there were there were, there was evidence collected on his involvement with the extreme right-wing opposition forces to topple the government. And what happens is that um, the U.S. government continues to intervene in Latin America, supporting the Right wing opposition to left wing governments. So in Venezuela, they promoted Guaido as a, no, like Guaido is this opposition politician in Venezuela who self declared himself to be the president. And the United States recognizes him to be the legitimate president of Venezuela, right? And the United States also imposes a blockade on Venezuela, right? And now with the war no, um, with the war in ukraine right as a run out of petroleum supplies they re-established relations with relationship with venezuela and now you see that the venezuelan economy you know has begun to overcome the crisis right but the whole narrative is that venezuela failed because of socialism that there is no alternative to neoliberalism right so in colombia too the right wing was using images from venezuela Right? So I saw, I saw huge billboards in my neighbourhoods and all, all over the city, images from Venezuela saying, okay, the Venezuelans also wanted a change. And they were forced mm-hmm. to change the country in which they live, right? Because there was a massive migration out of Venezuela during the economic crisis. So all of that was presented as a failure of socialism. So if you challenge neoliberalism, you would have to face mass starvation, right? So the whole, uh, you know, the whole question of U.S. blockade, the impact of the U.S. blockade, right? It was totally erased from predominant narratives on what's happening in Venezuela. Predominant mm-hmm. narratives in the media, right? Predominant narratives, right, in political circles of the right wing and so on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the United States, right from the beginning, has been trying to topple. Left governments. They played an active role in the coup in Bolivia. They played an active role in the coup in Honduras, right? Honduras also witnessed a military coup, and after the coup, some you know elections were conducted, and there were a lot of independent sources which found the elections to be fraudulent. But the U.S. government immediately recognizes the new president, the newly elected president, and declares that the election was completely free and fair,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah, so U.S. continues to intervene on an everyday basis, literally on an everyday basis in the region.
0: Mm -hmm. Professor Tadagatan, finally in your papers you talk about uh, the need to re-theorize the relationship between neoliberal capitalism and democracy after looking at what happened in the countries of Latin America. Could you expand on this a bit more?
1: Yeah, it's very interesting that neoliberal forces could go to any extent, right? To achieve their goals, right? During the Cold War, there were military dictatorships in Latin America, right? Military dictatorships with the support of the United States. So, military coups were conducted in countries like Chile, and military coups were supported throughout Latin America by the United States in the name of liberty and democracy, right? So, the idea was that, okay, so you know, to overcome the threat of communism, you need Military dictatorships. Mm -hmm. So you can see the irony here. So those military dictatorships were the most bloody, the most unabashedly dictatorial, right? Were thousands were disappeared, thousands Mm -hmm. were killed, there were targeted assassinations, right? And all that was justified in the name of liberty. So after the return to formal electoral democracy in Latin America, neoliberalism was established as the economic doctrine, with the to support of the United States. So when the left re-emerges in Latin America, and the new left is very committed to electoral democracy. So if you think of Venezuela, Bolivia, Brazil, Ecuador, all of them participated in electoral processes. So it's very different from the old Latin American left, mm-hmm. right? The old Latin American left, if you consider the example of Cuba, right? So the new left firmly stuck to multi-party electoral democracy. But now you have the United States supporting military coups,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right? Or coups with the active involvement of the military, to be more precise, in Honduras, in Bolivia. In the name of democracy and liberty. Something which happened in Bolivia during the coup was that fake Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts were created to support the extreme right-wing forces. And the new coup government hired a US company to create those fake accounts. Mm -hmm. So you had uh, Facebook itself, no? Uh, came forward officially to acknowledge that fake accounts were created. So the, so a firm called CLS Strategies was hired by the right-wing government to create those fake accounts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So the so- social media and digital social networks have also been used very extensively by the extreme right-wing forces to re-establish mm-hmm. neoliberalism in the region. Mm-hmm. Right? So it shows that neoliberalism would go to any extent to maintain its hegemony Uh or neoliberalism would go to any extent to restore the hegemony it lost in many parts of Latin America.
2: Uh
1: And the best evidence of it is the Bolivian coup in 2019, the coup in Honduras in 2008, Uh where you have the military being involved in toppling democratically elected governments. So I think there is an urgent need to re-theorize a relationship between neoliberal capitalism and democracy.
0: Thank you, Professor Tatagatan. Those are all my questions for today. It was really a pleasure having you with us. And thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and telling us so much that we didn't know about Latin America.
1: It was a pleasure being here. So thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to more conversations in the future.
0: Thank you to our listeners for joining us and you can find the articles mentioned in today's episode in the show notes. To experience all that EPW has to offer, head over to epw.in and subscribe today. This is Johan saying bye-bye and see you next time on Research Radio.